Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi everybody, I'm Eric Arnault, and this is part two of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast featuring the theme Meltdown, appropriately recorded at the Nerdist showroom at Meltdown Comics in Los Angeles, California, a few weeks ago. We had a fantastic time in LA, and we brought some of our favorite West Coast people to share their tales with you this week. Uh, you'll hear from Katie Wadsworth, Laura Jenkins, Faith D'Amato, and Nerdalogs Emeritus and founding member Kevin Walsh. You'll also get music from myself and Katie Johnston-Smith. Now, if you like this show and you want to see it live and you live in the Midwest, you'll get your next chance this Sunday, February 19th, 7 p.m. at the Sum Office Theater, 1917 North Elston in Chicago. It's our annual Fan Fiction February episode, and it's going to be a blast. And there are still one or two story spots available, so if you want to share some fan fiction or something inspired by the idea of fan fiction, email yourstories at nerdalogs.com with a brief pitch, and we'll get back to you ASAP. As always, thanks for listening to our show. Remember, if you like your stories, you can help us a ton by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. We need those stars, baby! And of course, the coolest thing you can do is just to keep listening. Thank you so much for doing that. Uh, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. It was super cool to make. And uh, yeah, have fun. This next song you guys may not know, it's by a dude named Ryan Adams. He had a couple particular meltdowns. One time he called a rock critic and left a nasty voicemail because he got a bad review. And the other thing is he would often um, freak out about fans yelling Summer of 69 at his shows because... <laughs> He is not Brian Adams, and then one day he assented and played it, and I don't, I, it was okay. But, um, I don't know, I, I, I had, a, like, a rough breakup last year, so I listened to a lot of Ryan Adams, so this song was definitely, like, uh, on my constant playlist for Did 2016. Did you break up with Mandy Moore also? I also broke up with Mandy Moore, actually. I was the reason that he did that Taylor Swift cover album. Um, but this song is very apropos, even in the title. This song is called Nuclear, so, yeah. One, two, three, four...
This is where the summer ends In a flash of pure destruction No one wins Go nuclear Nuclear The violets in my eyelids going red Sentimental geek Sentimental geek The calm, the beach, and the remains Of the bathing suits and porches all in flames Go nuclear, nuclear When I saw her, the Yankees lost to the Braves It's for Mary Beth Sentimental geek Sentimental geek Sentimental geek Shut up and go to sleep And give me Thanks, guys. Coming up next to the stage, we have another Chicago, uh, ex-Chicago, now local to L.A. She's a local comedian, friend of the group. So happy to have her on the show, actually, for the first time. I guess we just missed each other in Chicago. But this is Katie Wadsworth. Hey. Um, uh, this month marks one year in L.A. for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> I haven't done anything. It's fine. Um, no, I wanted uh, I wanted to talk about my first year here because it was filled with um, some very bad luck. Um, and to understand that uh, the trajectory of my year, you have to know what happened on my sixth day in L.A. Um, just a side note, I was originally supposed to move here uh, with my girlfriend, <clears throat> and I drove across the country with half of our stuff. And um, when I got here, she said she was actually not moving at all. Um, which was fine because like we all know that like long distance relationships always work out. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was in a very strange city, uh, miserable and alone and unemployed, uh, now with a long distance relationship. Um, and before I went to bed one night, I had asked the universe for a sign that I had made the right decision to move out here. Um, so the next morning, 
on my sixth day in Los Angeles. I woke up to the sounds of a girl screaming and crying. Um, I looked outside my bedroom window and I could see the girl who lives below me, she was on her balcony, freaking out, screaming. Um, and in a few minutes, my apartment was surrounded with police cars, ambulances, fire trucks. Um, and I opened the, the front door to my apartment and I asked my neighbor, like, what the hell happened? Um, and she told me that the girl in the apartment below me had committed suicide and that the girl we heard screaming was her roommate who had just come home and found her. Yeah, dog, I lived it. <laughs> uh, so my, uh, my landlord eventually told me she had done it in the bedroom directly below me. So she was 14 feet away when I fell asleep the night before. So over the next few months, I became slightly obsessed with this girl. And I found out her name, and I Googled it. I found her obituary. <laughs> I saw she'd only been in LA for six months. Um, I'm going to call her Megan for the rest of this story. Uh, I called my mom and cried about Megan, this stranger I had never met. <laughs> my Catholic mother was very insistent that I buy sage for my apartment and <laughs> just so her spirit wouldn't follow me. Um, so my January was a blur of um, crying in my car and trying to keep a long distance relationship alive. In February, I got the flu the first week of my new job. Okay, I passed a girl in my stairwell and she was wearing all white. And when I spoke to her, she didn't speak back and I convinced myself it was Megan's ghost. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, in March, I decided I would train for a half marathon. In April, I sprained both of my feet while training for said half marathon. I couldn't walk on them for three weeks. Uh, my girlfriend visited. I sobbed the day she left and begged her not to leave me alone here. Uh, I googled Megan again and found out she was related to the snowboarder Sean White. Um, and then I thought, I bet Sean White could run 10 miles without spraining his feet. <laughs> um, in May, a dog pushed me down a flight of stairs. <laughs> in June, I joined a CrossFit gym and um, a woman who was five months pregnant beat me every day. Um, and then I thought, uh, I bet a pregnant woman had never beat Sean White at anything. Um, I had made it six months in LA and I still hated it. I cried every time I saw the skyline. Megan had lived here for six months and maybe we could have hated LA together. Um, in July, my girlfriend canceled on a friend's wedding we were supposed to go to. And I brought my sister instead, and I sobbed during the vows and all of the speeches, and I drank too much wine, and I spent the night at my sister's house, and in the morning, my three-year-old twin nephews jumped on my bed, and when I told them I felt like throwing up, they pretended to make gagging noises. Um, and I wondered if Megan was close with her sister. Uh, I knew she had a sister because I read her obituary. Um, <laughs> Did she have nieces or nephews? Did she wipe spaghetti sauce off of their faces too? Did she have patience to cut their strawberries into fourths? Um, in August, I traveled eight hours for a 48-hour visit with my girlfriend with a head cold from hell and a 100-degree temperature. When I got back to LA, she told me she wished I hadn't come at all. Um, 
I wondered if because Megan died the way she did that maybe I got some bad juju solely from proximity and that that's why so many things felt like they were unraveling. And then I googled how to sage my apartment and get rid of spirits. <laughs> In September I made the same eight hour trek to see my girlfriend. Uh, when I got back to LA she told me the visit was mediocre. Um, I wondered if anyone regularly told Megan she was mediocre or made her feel unlovable or boring. I also wondered if my obsession with Megan, a girl I never met or knew, was the equivalent to those weird women who fell in love with famous criminals and would try to go visit them in jail and marry them. <laughs> in October at my friend's wedding, my girlfriend caught the bouquet. A week later, we broke up. Mary Beth, you were there. Was that image as haunting for you as it is for me? <laughs> Is that? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> it's been a year, baby. Um, okay, I met my mother and sister at an Outback Steakhouse for lunch, like one does. And when they asked me how I was doing, I started sobbing. I was trying to eat a hamburger while crying, which is very difficult to do. And all I could say was, it's been a very hard year, and I'm exhausted. In November on Thanksgiving, I cried on my parents' bed and told them I was done. I didn't think I could go on anymore. I felt unlovable and exhausted and run down. My father told me to quit being such a girl. <laughs> my mother told me I was perfect. <laughs> and that things... <laughs> She's a good one. Uh, she told me that things would get better. I would feel lighter soon. The clouds would part and other very momish things she has to say to her very sensitive youngest daughter. But she was right. In December, I noticed I didn't cry anymore when I saw the skyline. And as soon as I walked away from my relationship, I stopped feeling so lonely and sad. Whew. Um, I scrolled through a phone of people who I could call on. Los Angeles went from black and white to color. And I realized the whole year I made a little home for myself. And I watched out for dogs on stairwells. <laughs> I met someone who made me feel like I was easy to love, and I survived the first year. So for whatever reason, Megan chose to leave the earth because she felt like it was her time. And for whatever reason, I'm still here wiping spaghetti off of my nephew's faces. And I like to think that before her spirit left earth, it stopped in my room <laughs> directly above hers. And a little bit of her stayed to help me out and root for me. And she sat with me while I watched really depressing documentaries. <laughs> and I tried to figure out life, and she was really proud of both of us for fighting our way through a very hard year, and I really hope she got a good laugh when that fucking dog pushed me down a flight of stairs. Thank you. Katie Wadsworth, everybody, give it up for Katie. Oh my gosh. One year in LA, that's incredible. Thank you, Katie, for sharing that. Congratulations on making it. It's not easy, man, it's not easy. Coming next to the stage, we have another newcomer to your story. She is a writer and stand-up and a Fringe Festival award-winning playwright. This is Laura Jenkins. Hello, everyone. The year is 1996. The Jenkins are on vacation, their first family vacation. The Jenkins' parents have been planning this trip for a year scrimping and saving, rolling pennies, nickels, dimes, and the occasional quarter to save for this trip to fulfill their dream of taking their children to the Atlantic Ocean. It has been a long road trip in a minivan, 
14 and a half hours to be exact. Their children are young, an eight-year-old and twin six-year-olds. They only have two cassette tapes to pass the time, the soundtrack to The Lion King and Mary-Kate and Ashley's underrated album, The Cute One. <laughs> it is the agonizing last 10 minutes of the road trip. Everyone is tired, everyone is hungry, everyone needs to pee. I have been more than excited for this trip. In preparation, I have packed my two very best suits, uh, the frilly one piece with polka dots and my rainbow tankini. I have memorized the brochure of the condominium we'll be staying at. It's in a complex called the Sandy Sandals, and because I've seen commercials with Sandals Hotels and Resorts uh, during, uh, during Oprah, um, I cannot wait to live in the lap of luxury for one whole week. But when we pull up to the complex, I realize my dreams were ill-fated. The Sandy Sandals is in no way, shape, or form affiliated with Sandals Hotels and Resorts. I'm crushed. My dad parks the car and gets out. My brother tries to break for it to the ocean. Wait, my mom commands. A little bit of her frustration's creeping out. Then she pulls it back. We have to wait for dad. But we're here, my sister whines. She makes a valid point. My mother takes a deep breath in. We are being patient. My mother's words are final. We sit in silence for what feels like eternity, but in truth was only about 10 seconds. And I can no longer contain my extreme disappointment. This sure doesn't look like the brochure. <laughs> the second I utter this, the air disappears from the car. My heart stops beating, and I feel the immense weight of regret press me down into the earth. I have awoken what my siblings and I lovingly call my mother's mommy dearest. <laughs> when gravely dishonored, my mother becomes a vessel for the wrath of God. <laughs> and her powers can be felt through a single look. But today, God has chosen to give her words. <laughs> Laura Ann, we are at the ocean. The ocean is calm. <laughs> we will be calm in the ocean. <laughs> we will take off our shoes and our socks and we will frolic on the sands, and we will stick our toes in the water. And at the end of the day, will we, be, we will be happy to rest our heads on whatever pillow we find. But we are grateful because we have found a place to stay, and the Sandy Sandals condominiums will be lovely. Ten minutes later, the Jenkins family take off their shoes and their socks, and they put their toes in the salty waters. I am sorry to say I don't remember, remember those first moments at the ocean. Uh, I remember 
the days after, building sand castles and, and boogie boarding and the smell of sunscreen and ocean air and hearing seagulls all for the first time. But those first few moments, I don't think they were mine. All of her life, my mother, all she ever wanted was to be a mom. She wanted a family more than anything else. She married at 19, and they started trying to have children at 20. After years of struggling, she, de she was deemed more or less infertile. But then a miracle happened. Well, science. Miracles and science happened. <laughs> and eight years later, she finally conceived. And then an, then an even bigger miracle, she had twins. When asked what her favorite family memory is, my mom always says, other than peeing on a stick and finally seeing it turn pink, <laughs> is the first time she saw her babies stick her feet in the ocean, their feet in the ocean. She admits she was stressed out, exhausted, completely spent of energy. She regrets that meltdown right before. But seeing our faces, hearing our squeals of just joy, seeing our little bodies in front of the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean, it's not my memory to hold. I just have to remember how she felt. Grateful, whole, incandescently happy, like this journey, eight years of infertility, a collective 52 hours of labor, 14 and a half hours in a van, it was all worth it. Years later, though, mom can finally admit, Sandy Sandals was a piece of shit. <laughs> Thank you, Laura Jenkins. I'll be contacting Sandy Sandals, our new sponsor, very soon. Sweet adder. I wonder if they're still open. I'm going to go Google that when I edit this episode. We have two more storytellers tonight. I'm going to apologize in advance for this next introduction. Uh, you'll get it. Uh, you'll get it at the end. So um, in Chicago, we know this, this really wonderful dude. He's actually kind of like a hero of the Chicago podcast scene because he won, runs this, uh, this great like Patreon campaign. He makes a lot on Patreon, like enough to sustain really a whole podcast empire. And I think that that is an inspiration to all of us. He is an avid gamer, avid Star Wars fan, very politically active. He runs a bunch of actual play Star Wars podcasts, which are really cool. It's like where you take a role-playing game and play it on a podcast and people really like it. And he goes to like conventions like Gen Con and fuck, it's amazing. Anyway, this is a sister. This is Faith D'Amato. <laughs> I will be your James D'Amato stand-in for the evening. Um, over Christmas, my family and I played a game that my brother was playtesting uh, for uh, the band The Decemberists. The game is called Illamot. It's very fun. Keep a lookout for it on Kickstarter, and I believe it's coming out in August. Um, and I won that competition by over 16 points. That has nothing to do with my story. I just want people to know. <laughs> um, so over Christmas, I did get the uh, privilege of spending uh, the last few days of the year in my absolute favorite place in the world, um, Antarctica. It is 
this unbelievably gorgeous, serene place from the mountains to the icebergs and the glacier that glaciers that glow in the sunshine. It's just the most magical place that I've ever been. Um, it's incredibly peaceful. And when I was there, we saw an abundance of water, well, wildlife, stunning whales, breaching, adorable, blubbery seals napping on icebergs, and my favorite, perfect little penguins sledding down mountains on their bellies. And all of this turned me into a little anime character. I was just overwhelmed by how cute and adorable nature is. Um... <laughs> I mean, especially the penguins with their little chicks and their little penguin highways, which are our roads that penguins carve in the snow so they can all get through together and they like work together all season to make them and it is just so freaking cute. And they also go around the penguin colony and pick up rocks and bring them to their mates at their nest to make their nest so much better. And sometimes they steal them from other penguins or walk them all the way from the beach and it is just the best. Um... I I absolutely love penguins. The way they walk, they have to walk with their wings back like this because they can't balance because their bodies are so goddamn awkward. But they are amazing little mountain climbers. You could see these little guys hopping up huge cliffs just to get to their nests. It's incredible. And then when you see them in the water, they look like little whales. They're so graceful and so beautiful. I could spend days sitting on the Antarctic shores watching penguins come in and out of the ocean and climb these mountains. And I was absolutely sure that if I sat there still long enough, one of them would hobble over to me and want a hug. It didn't happen, but I'm convinced if I spent enough time, it could. I, I am absolutely in love with them. One day when I was basking in all of the penguin goodness, 2016 decided to land its final crippling kick to the groin. I was gushing about the penguins bringing rocks to each other and brought up my favorite childhood film, The Pebble and the Penguin. Then I said the words that would send my reality spinning out of orbit. My absolute favorite thing about penguins is that they mate for life and they propose to each other with little stones. Suddenly, as if summoning a demon, two of the naturalists who I had befriended popped out of nowhere. Actually, they said, that isn't true. Penguins don't mate for life. They went on to further explain how penguins are really more monogamish, and they really only stay faithful to their partners for one mating season. They occasionally come back to the same partner if, say, they had a successful mating season, but they would easily throw that partner away if they had a better offer the next year. <sighs> it's about survival of the fittest. It's about repopulation, they said, not devotion or romance. Trying to personify nature is a waste of time because nature isn't cute. I was crushed. Absolutely inconsolable. What the fuck do you mean nature isn't cute? I 
was very happy, believing that this was a perfect little wonderland. For the rest of the the trip, as if cursed, every time I uttered the word cute, a naturalist would be summoned to explain in excruciating detail why nature was not, in fact, cute. See that cute little penguin chick? It'll probably get eaten by a skua or freeze to death because global warming has made it warm enough that it rains this type of time of year instead of snows, and they don't have uh, waterproof feathers yet. They'll freeze and die. Or, you know, maybe they'll starve to death because one of their parents will be eaten by a seal or a killer whale. Nature is about survival of the fittest. Nature is not cute. I have been lied to for years. From children's cartoons, to science classes, to documentaries, thank you so much, Morgan Freeman. (laughs) 2016 was a nasty year. Aside from the abundance of celebrity deaths and political atrocities, it was a frustrating, stagnant year for my career. It was a year where I had my heart completely shattered. It was a year where my mother's cancer became active again. And this seemed like the exact shitty way how this year would wrap up in a nice little terrible bow. Believe it or not, I am a romantic And I am an optimist, (laughs) but I believe in science, and I don't want to be the kind of person who denies facts when they're presented. And I can't manipulate these facts in a way that says that penguins mate for life because they don't. And there's, in fact, no species of penguin that does. But what I can do is this. And my apologies to my naturalist friends, but I'm going to personify penguins one more time. Here are these silly little flightless birds that um, I hold as my romantic ideals. No, they don't make for life, but I think what they do is so much better. Penguins spend months before the mating season preparing. They gain weight to bulk up in preparation for the weeks that they will have to sit on the nest without food. They fight their hardest to get a prime nesting location to keep them safe from predators. And sometimes they have to climb up mountains to do so, using over a quarter of their diet just to get to their nests. They fight their, uh, they um, scour the nesting grounds and beaches for not just one rock, but hundreds of little rocks to build a strong nest. And then they defend those nests from predators. Penguins don't have great defense techniques on land. They have silly little wings, and they can make sounds. But it's really hard to defend yourself against real predators. They put every ounce of effort that they have into having a successful mating season. They put their lives on the line and work with their partner to accomplish a singular goal. They succeed and fail together. In human romance, we put a lot of weight into magical feelings that are supposed to keep us together. But if we're being realistic, love is a mix of different chemical reactions in the brain, and that alone is a lot to base a life off of. Maybe along with those warm, fuzzy, cute feelings, maybe we should be seeking a partner who has the same goal as us.
Whether that goal is to create a lasting monogamous bond or be the greatest power couple of all time or create an exciting polyamorous relationship. I believe the best way to do this is by finding someone who wants the same thing, someone who is prepared as you are to put in the effort, someone who will help you pebble by pebble build the lives that you want to live. These pebbles don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be magical. They just have to be purposeful. So, on a final note to this demon year that was 2016, you unfortunately get to keep the likes of David Bowie, but I get to keep penguins as my romantic ideal. So fuck you. You didn't escape with all of the good in the world. There's still plenty of it to go around. Thank you. Faith D'Amato, everybody. You know, Maybe those nasty naturalists say nature isn't cute, but I want to say Faith and I went to uh, this this place on Fairfax earlier called uh, Barkin' Bitches, and it is a combination like Pet Store Boutique and like a rescue shelter where the dogs run around in the store, and it is the world's most adorable thing, and oh my god, I just, I want to live there. Holy shit, it was awesome. Also, I do want to say Faith told me to introduce her brother instead of her. Uh, I would like to say she's also a very, very accomplished uh, writer and actress, and uh, I met her because of a Girl Meets World podcast that she did. That is true. And I think tonight is a series finale for Girl Meets World, so let's pour one out for Corey and Topanga and the end of their story. We have, seriously though, love them. Love that couple. That's a power couple, Corey and Topanga. Holy shit. Guys, we have one more storyteller tonight, and this is very, very cool. Like I said, the Nerdalogs have been a sketch group longer than they've been a uh, people who make storytelling podcasts, and this gentleman is one of the founders of the Nerdalogs. He predates me. And a lot of people, uh, really everyone else but one person in this room, uh, and I'm really excited to have him here to close out the evening. This is Kevin Walsh. I'm not happy that you dropped that bombshell about Girl Meets World on me. <laughs> All right. Um, so today, I quit my job. Thank you. Oh. Not that cool. I actually quit two weeks ago, as is accordance with company policies and common courtesy. <laughs> but today was my last day in exit interviews, so fuck the man, right? Yeah. I was only at that job for six months, but it got me thinking, that's not the shortest time I've held a job. No, that record is one day. <laughs> the story starts like so many great ones. Pure desperation. Uh, I got two speeding tickets in high school back-to-back, -back, had to lawyer up, and I was in need of fast cash. No questions asked. I'd take anything. Lucky for me, my uh, half-brother's father was a small business owner. So nepotism works in mysterious ways. Unfortunately for me, uh, he had an animal control company. Nature is not cute. <laughs> Uh, before I get into that, I want to uh, backtrack and tell you a little bit about my former almost stepdad. Uh, his name is Scott. He was a short, goateed, beer-gutted man who loved hunting, uh, owned lots of unironic deer sweaters, and uh, had a pheasant coop in our backyard. So the fact that he now ran his own animal control company was of no surprise to anyone. <laughs> to date, the best and most clear memory I have of him was when I was in second grade and he fat shamed me. 
You might be thinking, how do you fat shame a second grader? First of all, really, guys? <laughs> Not cool, but it's a valid question. Uh, maybe you make them strip naked in a bathroom, tell them to look down, and go, if you can't see your pee-pee over your gut, you're too fat. And it's true, I couldn't see my penis over my stomach. But I could see the giant asshole in front of me. <laughs> I, I hated the guy, but like I said, desperate times call for desperate measures. So I took the gig. Uh, he picked me up at 5.30 a.m. Uh, and I lost my innocence by lunch. The first stop of the day uh, was pickup. Two possums caught and caged. And guess who got to carry the cages to the truck? Have you ever, uh, you guys ever handled a couple of caged possums before? No? Let me save you the trouble. They do not play possum, guys. They are giant albino rat beasts, and they are vicious. They were shaking the cages. They were snarling. They were clawing at the tiny holes in the, in the cage. I was wearing... Shitty work gloves and cargo shorts. I was very aware that there was a high probability I would get rabies within my first 10 minutes on this job. But we got him in the truck. We got in. And if you're asking, could you go to a forest preserve somewhere and let them live out their happy possum lives? No, I'm sorry to say. Uh, we drove back to his rented dairy farm in the Chicago suburbs. Um, I like to call it Carcosa, if you're a fan of True Detective. <laughs> uh, we rounded the barn, and uh, there were, there, the ground was all torn up. The grass was stripped. It was all muddy. There were barrels on fire and syringes everywhere. It dawned on me why those possums were so angry. But worry not, Scott assured me. No, he would take care of euthanizing them today. Yep, yep, he was going to inject them, burn their bodies, so I dodged that one, uh, but I have a much different task. Uh, he led me uh, to his house and uh, into the basement, and when he opened the door, I was caught by a, a wall of stench that was like a wall of stench. There isn't a good <laughs> metaphor for it. And we descended deeper, and the smell got worse and worse, and I don't know why I wasn't alarmed or worried that I might be murdered in that basement, but it didn't cross my head, so I was okay. We get to the back of the basement, and there's a giant uh, freezer, and uh, open it. Anyone want to take a guess? You don't. <laughs> it's filled to the brim with giant, dead, frozen raccoons. <laughs> he graciously double-bagged them, but, you know, my job, <laughs> my job was going to be to take the raccoons out of the freezer and bring them to his truck. There's a theme to my tasks for the day. Um, but it smelled so bad, I was gagging, I was just, ugh. I ran out, and I was like, the only way I'm going to be able to do this is if I hold my breath the entire time I'm in his house. So I take a deep breath, and I bolt down into the, into the basement, and I run across, and I flip open the thing, and I grab the first raccoon, and I go to pull it out, and it just won't budge. <laughs> so I'm fighting with it, like, it's, it's, it's frozen. They're rigor mortis together. There's like frostbite and they're just stuck together and their limbs are all intertwined. I'm freaking out. I'm holding my breath so I'm getting lightheaded and I'm just like, please, 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 just untangle your arm. 
Oh, and they were so heavy. The frozen blood was so heavy, you guys. But I got one free finally, and I raced back upstairs, and I threw it in the back of the truck, and I caught my breath, and then I had to do it 12 more times. I was, I was emotionally devastated. I was a wreck. I, 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 I was inconsolable, and it was 8 a.m., You might be wondering, uh, you know, what do you do with a truck full of frozen dead raccoons? A little weird thing to wonder, but a valid question. So if you're Scott, you go to a uh, landfill and illegally dump them with your ex-fiancé's son, who you never really loved. That's what you do. Uh, the rest of the day was kind of a blur. We made several other stops. Um, the most notable one is we went to this creepy mansion from the, like owned by this 90-year-old invalid. Uh, the door was answered by his creepy Norman Batesy nephew-slash-caretaker. And uh, yeah, he led us to the attic to look for some bats, and I was very afraid of being murdered then. Uh, we saw some feral cats and uh, some weird smelting factory on the south side of Chicago, but honestly, it just washed over me. I had this sort of glazed, unresponsive thing. Like, I'd seen some shit. You know, I had aged years in that morning. I was traumatized worse than the time someone made me look down and tell me that I couldn't see my dick. <laughs> so we, he graciously bought me two dollar menu chicken sandwiches and it was the best thing I ever eaten. I, I don't know, it was just, oh, it tasted so good. And he took me home, and he gave me that cash I so desperately needed, and uh, we made eye contact, just pleasantries. But I think, really, it was quite obvious that I was never going to fucking do that ever again. <laughs> and I didn't see him again for 10 years, and that was the day I melted down. Thank you. Thank you. Kevin Walsh, everybody! Woo! Katie, come back up! No. We played that one at PAX. That was pretty fun in front in, in a room of like very like important people who created like uh, the most you know successful Kickstarter projects of all time, and we're dicking around with Brian Adams. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for coming tonight. This was wonderful. Give it up for all the storytellers one more time. Yeah. Too late.
Meltdown. This is awesome. Such a good night. Thank you guys so much for coming. I hope we come back to LA soon and I hope we all see you again. Let's hang out and be friends. Your Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy your stories, you might also like Open Ended. The vulnerability behind the glass with the side of sass. This radio show seeks the people behind the screens through stories that intersect technology and culture. For more info on Open Ended, visit openended.fm. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.